We're not here to gain more ground on his behalf. That's not the mission of the church. We're standing firm. Yes, we're sharing the gospel. We're seeing new souls captured for his kingdom. But we're standing firm on the ground he's already conquered. And someday he will return again and he will continue the route of his enemies. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What would your life look like if it reflected the power and strength of Jesus? How does His strength actually become your strength? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part five of a series titled Learning to Use God's Armor. You know, every soldier has a mission And through Tom's study in Ephesians chapter 6, you've discovered that Christians have a specific mission. And today, Tom will look at the very heart of this objective, that you'll be able to stand firm, to stand firm like Jesus Christ against the temptations and attacks of the enemy. But practically speaking, in what ways are you meant to stand firm? Let's find out as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our study of really the most famous passage, I think, in the entire letter, a passage that's often described as the believer's armor. We're learning in Ephesians 6 that we too are in a battle. We are foot soldiers in the infantry of a war between God and Satan. And Satan takes these very same tactics, his great mission. His tactics on the battlefield are to mystify, mislead, and surprise. He constantly, relentlessly wars against us, and the battle that he wages against each of us is primarily a battle fought in our minds. If we're going to survive spiritually, we have to understand our enemy's tactics. We have to understand what Paul explains in Ephesians 6 about being prepared for the battle. Let me read for you again this text, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints." And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, and that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, the theme of this paragraph is simply this. In the war of the Christian life, we can only stand firm in the strength of Christ and the armor of God. As Paul develops that theme, these 11 verses that I just read for you divide into three basic parts. The first part is verses 10 through 13, which I've entitled, Understand Our Orders. Here Paul gives us a sort of general explanation of what our orders are in this war. The second part is verses 14 to 17. I've entitled this section, Put on God's Armor. Here he gives us a detailed explanation of the pieces of armor which we are to put on. The third part of this paragraph is in verses 18 to 20. And when we get to it, I'll argue for why it should be included in this section. And I think there are strong, really insurmountable arguments that this is intended to be part of this armor section. And I've entitled this last section, verses 18 to 20, Think Like a Soldier. Here, Paul tell us, tells us that we have to develop a proper mindset or attitude for the battle in which we are engaged. So then, if we're going to stand firm in the war that is the Christian life, we must first understand our orders. This whole passage is built on this metaphor that we are soldiers in the Lord's army. And as soldiers, we've been given very specific orders. And in verses 10 through 13, Paul presents us with what our orders really are. In verses 10 and the first part of verse 11, the overarching command. In verse 11, the second part of verse 11, the objective or the mission behind our orders. What is it we're supposed to be accomplishing? In verse 12, the enemy that we will face in fulfilling our orders. And in verse 13, a summary of our orders as he pulls it all together. Now last week, we looked just at the very first part of understanding what our orders are. The overarching command. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. <coughs> As I noted last time, these are the instructions really that summarize everything that's been said in Ephesians. These instructions are how to do everything that we have read and studied in the rest of the letter. The only way to be and to do what we have been commanded to be and to do is by heeding Ephesians chapter 6 and this passage. And the key is, in the verb in verse 10, be strong. Literally, as we saw last time, that's a passive. Be strengthened. In other words, Paul isn't telling us to, to sum up our own strength, to sort of summon our own strength from within and do this. He's saying, cooperate in some way so that an external strength a power outside of us can come in and make us strong. Be strengthened. The verb is in the present tense, meaning this is to be a habit of life. This isn't something you do once. This is something you do every day. You must be strengthened. Where does the spiritual strength come from? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
as throughout the rest of Ephesians, the word Lord here refers to Jesus Christ. So the source of our spiritual strength is Christ. Ultimately, it is that word that ends verse 10, His might, His inherent power. And that might or power that is inherent in Him manifests itself in strength. The Greek word translated strength there speaks of ruling or sovereignty. So if we sort of put everything there together, we learn that the believer is to find the strength he needs to live out the Christian life in Christ's power to act, a power that has its source in Christ's own inherent, unlimited power. You say, that sounds great. I'd love to have that functioning in my life. I'd love to be strengthened to be able to respond to temptation with the same strength Christ did when he resisted Satan and said no. But how? How does his strength actually become my strength? Well, verse 11 tells us, put on the full armor of God. Here's how to gain the strength of Christ. Paul doesn't just come out and tell us in prosaic Greek or English, Instead, he tells us how to make Christ's strength our own in an extended metaphor. I asked my girls a a week or so ago what a metaphor was over the breakfast table. We were talking about several different things. And, and, um, you know, I, I find myself successful as a father when I can get my kids to say the word dad in four syllables. Dad. And that morning I was in that mood, a mood to do that, and so I said, what's a metaphor? And they started giving me these pretty accurate answers as to what the English figure of speech is. And I said, no, no. What's a metaphor? It's a place where you put cows and horses. <laughs> Actually, they were right. A metaphor is an extended comparison that doesn't use the word like where there is a a comparison of one thing to another to give you insight. It's an extended illustration, if you will. That's what he's doing here. He doesn't come out and say, here's how you become strong with Christ's strength. Instead, he tells us in this extended metaphor, put on the full armor of God. The Greek word for full armor refers to complete body armor of a heavily armed infantry soldier. But in this case, it's not our own armor. You know, some people refer to this passage as the believer's armor. And in one sense, that's true. Obviously, we're to put it on. But the emphasis here isn't on that. The emphasis is on the fact that this is God's armor that we put on. Now, today, we continue to unpack just the first part of this passage, verses 10 through 13, and Paul's explanation of our orders. We're still trying to understand our orders. Last time we saw the overarching command, we just reviewed that. This morning, I want us to move on to the next part of our orders, and that is the objective. The mission, if you will. A soldier, every soldier has a mission. They're given an objective, and so are we. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that, this speaks of purpose, Here's why. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There is the heart of our mission, the heart of our objective as soldiers. So that you will be able to stand firm. And just in case you missed it, 
Paul emphasizes this again and again as our mission in this passage. You see it in verse 11, stand firm. Look down in verse 13. He uses a synonym, resist. Literally means to withstand in the evil day. Verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. And then verse 14, stand firm therefore. Three times he uses the same word, and once he uses a synonym, all to communicate the same idea. Our mission, our objective is to stand firm. The Greek word literally means to stand, and when it's used in a military context like this, it means to hold out in a critical position on the battlefield, to withstand the attack of the enemy, to hold one's ground. As Mool, the commentator, writes, the present picture is not of a march or an assault, but of the holding of the fortress of the soul and of the church for the heavenly king. Now, folks, this is very, very important. When this word is used in a military context, as it is here, it's not talking about an attack. It's talking about withstanding an attack. In fact, let me show you how this word is used in one place in the Old Testament in a military context. Go back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. And of course, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew a couple of hundred years before our Lord lived. It was translated into Greek. That Greek translation is what was used for the most part in the first century. And the apostles often quote from it, etc. That Greek translation is called the Septuagint. When you hear me refer to the Septuagint, that's what that is. It is a Greek translation from the original Hebrew done a couple of hundred years before Christ. Now, in the Septuagint, they use this word in Daniel chapter 11, verse 15. And I won't give you all the context. Suffice it to say, there's a description here of ongoing battles between the Ptolemies of Egypt and Syria. Basically, you have a battle for the promised land for Israel back and forth for several hundred years between these superpowers who gained their strength after Alexander the Great's death. But notice verse 15. Here we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, if you're interested in that, one of the Syrians. The king of the north will come. He will cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south here's our word, will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength in them, here it is again, to make a stand. That's the picture of the word in Ephesians 6. This word does not describe an offensive campaign, but rather holding your ground, holding your position against an attacking enemy. The language is not one of an offensive war, but a defensive war. In other words, in Ephesians 6, we are not told how to attack Satan, but how to withstand his attacks. You see, Christ already has won a good portion of the victory that will ultimately be his. He won it at the cross when he defeated Satan. And now, we are merely the army that he has put in place to hold the ground he has gained. We're not here to gain more ground on his behalf. That's not the mission of the church. We're standing firm. Yes, we're sharing the gospel. We're seeing new souls 
captured for his kingdom, but we're standing firm on the ground he's already conquered, and someday he will return again, and he will continue the route of his enemies. That's the picture. This certainly contradicts the approach of many of our brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement. You see, what began here in Ephesians 6 as a metaphor of being strong in Christ eventually became, instead of a metaphor, a movement called the spiritual warfare movement. The imagery of Ephesians 6 became the way to define everything in Christianity, everything in the Christian life. It's all spiritual warfare, not in the sense of defending ourselves against the attacks of Satan, but in the sense of taking our attacks to Satan. This became the key to evangelism. If you want to see some uh, place evangelized, they taught, then you first have to bind Satan. If you hear that language, bind Satan or binding Satan, it has to do with this whole uh, movement called the spiritual warfare movement. As a result of that, there were events and continue to be events like prayer marches around cities and towns and regions and even countries. There are lots of books written. There are journals that have been written. There are men whose whole ministry is about binding Satan. The academic mind behind this movement was a man named Peter Wagner from Fuller Seminary. He talked about binding territorial demons, etc. We'll see a little more about him and his views next week. The most famous popular level presentation of this spiritual warfare movement was really from the pen of a novel writer named Frank Peretti. Back in 1986, he published a book called This Present Darkness, and he followed it with a sequel called Piercing the Darkness. All of this was about this spiritual warfare movement. And at its root, it's about binding Satan. It's about attacking and being on the offensive against Satan. One charismatic author describes how to do this. He begins by quoting Luke 10, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, which of course was a promise to the apostles, not to every individual Christian. And then he urges people to pray a prayer like this. You want to bind Satan in your life? He says, here's how you do it. Quote, By the power and authority of the holy name of Jesus of Nazareth, the name above all names, I now rebuke all the works of the enemy, Satan, and all his principalities and powers and rulers in dark, evil places. I now, with the power and authority you give me, Jesus, cast Satan out of every area of my life. I command every demon in my life or circumstance to leave now. Satan, I bind you now in every area of my life and circumstances, and then in parentheses, say specifically what areas. I ask for the Holy Spirit and the angels of God to perform the will of God now and the words of my mouth. I thank you, Jesus, for hearing and answering my prayers and for giving me the power of the Holy Spirit, your name, and the blood you gave as the Lamb of God to prevail over all the works of Satan. Amen. Every demon in my life, every onslaught in my life, I bind them. I restrict them where they can't operate is what this is all about. Benny Hinn captures the heart of what this movement is all about when he wrote back in 2008, we have authority over the enemy who is controlling and binding the lives of our loved ones. We have authority to dominate the dominator. We have authority to torment the tormentor. 
The Lord tells us that we must bind the strong man, and God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Today, refuse fear, embrace boldness, attack the enemy, and engage in spiritual warfare. Now, what about all of that? Listen, folks, the spiritual warfare movement as a whole is patently unbiblical. Jesus did give his apostles his specially identified ones and sent ones who were his legal representatives on earth. He gave them his power to cast out demons, and they did. But there is no evidence that even they ever bound demons or Satan. In fact, the only two times in Scripture that Satan is bound is number one, by Jesus during his ministry. They love to quote those passages there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. And he says, no, you've got it all wrong. If you're going to steal a strong man's goods, you first have to bind that strong man, and then you can plunder him. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, that's what I'm doing when I cast out demons. I have bound Satan, and I am therefore able to cast out the demons. So Jesus did it. And the second time in all of Scripture when we're told that Satan will be bound is in Revelation 20 when an angel does it, not a human being, when he's bound for a thousand years during the millennial period, and then he's loosed again at the end of that period. That's it. And in fact, we are told not to have a direct confrontation with Satan in the sense of on the attack, on the offensive against him. In Jude, verse 8, Jude, the second to last book in the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother writes about false teachers. And he says these false teachers, verse 8, they defile the flesh. They're all into their flesh and the fleshly pursuits. They give this aura of spirituality, but in reality, they're all about pursuing their own fallenness. They reject authority. They're their own authority. And, verse 8, they revile angelic majesties. They think they have power over supernatural beings. Instead, verse 9, even Michael, the archangel, the most powerful holy being in the universe next to God, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, we, this is the only place we're told about this. Apparently this happened when, you remember, Moses died and was privately buried, and apparently Satan somehow wanted his body, maybe to make it an object of worship, to make it idolatry for the children of Israel. We're really not told. Even Michael, when they disputed about this, did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things they do not understand. They don't even know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're involved in. Peter says the same thing over in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Again, in verse 10, he describes these false teachers as reviling angelic majesties. Hey, listen, mark it in your book that whenever you find somebody who's taking on supernatural beings, you have a false teacher. Twice, we're told they're the ones who revile angelic majesties, who take it on themselves to do that. Whereas, verse 11, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. 
This is all patently unbiblical. What Ephesians 6 is calling on us to do is not to attack Satan, not to go on the offensive against him, not to bind him, but to stand firm against his attacks, to withstand his attacks against us. That's the spirit in which you and I are called to battle. We're to hold the ground that our Lord himself has claimed. We're to stand firm, not in our own strength, but in his strength. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Learning to Use God's Armor. Tom will have part six for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.